I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, Vulgar History fans, check out my new podcast, Are We Home Yet?, where I talk to expats about what it's like living abroad, and they tell their stories, whether it's the struggles, joys, falling in love, raising a family, managing a business in another country, and maybe still searching for that place they will one day call home. I'm your host, Jalila Clark. Welcome to my new show, Are We Home Yet?, Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is season five, Vulgar History International. We're looking at people from various different countries, different cultural backgrounds, and this week we are looking at the story of Njinga of Angola and Matamba. My main source for this episode is the biography Njinga of Angola by Linda Haywood, which is a really, really, really good biography. It's very readable, very understandable. It's got all the facts. And sort of like um, the book about Fredegund and Brunhild that came out, this is the first biography, the first nonfiction biography of this woman, um, which 
as we'll talk about in this episode, she is one of the great monarchs in world history. And it's great that there's finally a biography written about her, but also it kind of sucks that there wasn't one until now. But we'll talk about why there wasn't when we get to the legacy. So because this story takes place in Angola, there's a whole aspect of this about um, black history, about the history of the African continent that I, as a white woman in Canada, do not. I don't, I'm not here to speak about that. I don't, those cultural nuances, nothing that I would feel appropriate um, talking about. So I li- I listened to uh, the podcast episode about Njinga. So there's a podcast called It's a Continent, which is so good. It's really funny. So it's hosted by two women. I think they both live in the UK now, and they're both of African ancestry. So they explore key historical moments which have shaped the African continent in an easily digestible, satirical, and shady format. I also listened to the Njinga episode from the Excuse My African podcast, Life Through the Eyes of a Misrepresented and Misunderstood African Girl Abroad. And then for the not the African point of view, but the American, African-American point of view. I listened to the, there's an episode of the Humanity Archive podcast about Njinga. That's uh, another really good podcast. I'm hosted by a black American man. Um, And that tells the untold and overlooked stories of history. I also referred to Wikipedia. And then also Anne Terrio, who's a history writer you may know about. She writes the Queens of Infamy for long reads. She has a piece about Njinga. I looked at that as well. I also listened to an episode of the Royal Diaries Unlocking History podcast. Why is that? That's because there is, there's this book series, the Royal Diaries. They were out in like the 90s slash early 2000s that are children's books talking about kind of the teenage years of various royal women from different countries. And there is one of them about Njinga. And actually this is, I had to double check, but this is the second vulgar history episode that talks about a person about whom there was a Royal Diaries book. The first was Cleopatra. And before the season is over, there's going to be one more Royal Diaries person that I will be profiling. Anyway, so the Royal Diaries Unlocking History podcast, they talk about each of the books in the Royal Diaries series and talk about the real history of them. And it's a really fun podcast. Super recommend as well. And I wanted to say, if this is your first episode of Vulgar History, welcome. Glad to have you here. And please note that some things happen so often in vulgar history episodes, I don't often do content warnings because it's like these things happen in every episode. It would be like if my favorite murder was like content warning, murder. It's like, yeah, this is going to happen in every episode. So stuff that comes up all the time um, to the point that there is a bingo card that the members of the Tits Out Brigade helped me create. If you scroll down on the Instagram at vulgar history pod, you can see it there. So stuff like um, gross age differences, child marriage, um, the death of children, the murder of children, murder within a family, murder in general, suicide, sexual assault, um, and slavery. But this episode has some things happen in it that haven't been in other episodes. So I'm going to give you a heads up that this episode is going to include, um, the non-consensual sterilization of women, cannibalism, and the Atlantic slave trade. So about that, so this episode discusses the slavery practices of several African tribal groups. And we've had stories in this podcast before where enslaved people were involved. Harem Sultan, Malintzin recently. Also, Fredegan was enslaved. Um, Agrippina and Cleopatra retained enslaved people. 
like there's been slavery in the show before, but the content warning for this episode is that we're going to be also talking about the Atlantic slave trade, which is not something we've really delved into before. So just to be really clear, I'm going to quote two people who are not me to explain this concept. So first, Jermaine Fowler from the Humanity Archive podcast said in his episode about Njinga that there's this tendency to isolate and alienate those people of the African continent as quote unquote selling their people as if the Europeans didn't sell their people as if the Asians did not enslave their people or those in pre-colonial America or anywhere else in the world didn't sell their people. Now, if this human history of enslaving other human beings wasn't bad enough throughout the whole of human history, we're about to get into slavery 2.0 when we talk about the European slave trade, because this might be one of the most brutal forms of slavery in world history. The European slave trade was like leaping from using swords in battle to heavy artillery and machine gun fire. All of slavery is destructive, but machine gun fire is going to kill way more people, way more rapidly, way more destructive force with way more implications than just a blade. And as Anne Terrio said in her Long Reads piece about Njinga, there is a vast difference between the slavery that existed before colonization and the operation that the Portuguese created. So there is slavery in this story, but also it's the slave trade, which is a whole other huge thing. So just to be clear about that, um, this story takes place in central western Africa along the coast. Njinga, our heroine, was born in the kingdom of Ndongo, which is located in the northern part of modern-day Angola. I will put a map on the Instagram just to really situate this, if you're not sure where that is. So the west coast of the African continent. If you picture Africa, there's sort of like a lump sticking out on the left-hand side. If you go down below the lump a bit, that's kind of where the story takes place. At the time of her birth, Ndongo was the second largest state in central Africa. The people of this kingdom and also other kingdoms nearby were the were Mbundu. So this is a Bantu people who are nowadays the second largest ethnic group in modern day Angola. The spoken language of Njinga and her family was Kimbundo, which is still the language spoken by Mbundu people in Angola today. So the words, especially where this is a podcast, they might sound similar, like when we were doing Harem, lived in the Harem. So the the place. It's the kingdom of Ndongo. The people are the Mbundu. The language is Kimbundu. And our heroine is Njinga. So another important term to know um, is the term Angola, which might be confusing because this is a podcast. So you might think I'm saying Angola, like the name of the modern day country, but there's no A at the beginning. It's N-G-O-L-A. And that is the Kimbundu word for their monarch or their leader and it's generally a male gendered term like we've had in other stories so like with um rani Ditta, where she became sri Ditta, um it's it's a term that's generally it just kind of means the ruler so we're going to use the word angola instead of king because it's got its own connotations to this place and time um and the reason why it sounds like the name of the country Angola is that someone heard Portuguese people, I think, heard someone use the term Angola and they thought, oh, that's the name of this country. And they're like, let's call it Angola. So just, you know, white people. So at the time that Njinga was born, the Angola of Ndongo was her grandfather. So she's the granddaughter of the Angola. Her father, whose name is Mbande, was the heir to the throne because he was the oldest son of the first wife. But... So this is a situation, again, where we've got, like, multiple 
wives sort of thing going on. But the first wife, it's like her children would be the heirs. Her children would be the most important. So Mbande, Njinga's father, um, had a first wife, but he also had concubines. And Njinga's mother was a concubine named Kengele Ka Nkombi. And she was, in fact, his favorite concubine. And Jingu was the second child born to this couple. So she had an older brother, also called Mbande. And then later, her father and mother would have two more daughters, Kambu and Fungi. So her father, Mbande, had lots of other children with his other wives and concubines. But these four, Mbande, Njinga, Kambu, and Fungi, were all full siblings. They shared the same parents. But first, this is a story, like, you know, it's epic because from moment one, like, when she is born, it's already a story. So Njinga was making a grand entrance from moment one in that she was born in the breech position, which means she was face up, which babies are usually born face down, with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. So the fact that she and her mother both survived is notable, and her mother went on to have two more children. So this is actually how she got her name. So her name is Njinga, based on the Kimbundu word kujinga, which means to twist or to turn, like how the cord was wrapped around her neck. And among the Umbundu people, children who suffered difficult or unusual births were believed to possess, possess spiritual gifts. And some saw the births as an indicator the person would grow up to become a powerful person. And they were right, because this is part one of a two-part episode. And Jenga's story is very dramatic, and she's a very powerful person. So um, her, very, her dramatic birth meant everyone thought she was destined for great things. Guess what? She was. So, which is just as well, because she was born into a really chaotic situation, just in terms of what was going on politically. So she was born in 1583. To put this into perspective to other world events slash things we've talked about on this podcast. So this was five years before Elizabeth I became queen in England. And actually, Njinga and Elizabeth I are compared um, because they would go on to reign at the same time for a while and other similarities that we're going to get to. It's just interesting they were both alive at the same time. But that's England. The That's not what's going on in Ndongo. In 1583, the year she was born, this was around 100 years since the Portuguese had arrived in Central Africa. And that's going to be a huge part of this story because that really set the scene for the world she was born into, which is one in which everyone was at war all the time. And to be clear, everyone had been at war all the time already, because it's the 16th century and everywhere in the world there were like we've talked about there's like little kingdoms there's not big countries anywhere and everybody wanted to take land from each other this was happening all over the place it just exacerbated once um the portuguese showed up because that sort of affected the balance of power so the portuguese arrived they were the first europeans to arrive here in this era And they began capturing African people to send them to Portugal to work as laborers. And then once the Portuguese set up a colony in Brazil, they began sending these captured Africans there. Um, And they were obviously enslaved. They were not going there for jobs. They were going there um, as slaves. So, and the more they needed a constant stream of new enslaved people because they were building more and more things. So the base of operations for this slave trade was Western Central Africa, near Ndongo. And the Portuguese had allied with the Kingdom of Congo, which was uh, just to the north of Ndongo. I think I said Ndongo was the second biggest kingdom, and Congo is the biggest one. And it's near where the modern-day Democratic Republic of the Congo is. So 
Congo and Ndongo were already enemies, and then the Portuguese teamed up with Congo, and so they were super powerful now, and the enemies of Njinga's country. So this made everything pretty awful for Ndongo, being surrounded by war, but also knowing that when their people were captured in war, they would be sent across the Atlantic to Brazil. Um, again, quoting Ontario, she described the Ndongo that Njinga was born into as a place where a rancid combination of white people, colonialism, and the Atlantic slave trade were tearing it apart. And her grandfather, who's the Angola, was not equipped fundamentally as a person or alliance-wise with enough troops to save the day. He just wasn't equipped. He just wasn't able to. I don't know if anyone could have done it. It was a really shitty situation, but he kept trying. Um, he tried a variety of methods to handle this crisis, including diplomacy, negotiations, open warfare, but nothing he did improved the situation. In 1593, when Njinga was 10 years old, her grandfather died, and her father, Mbande, became the new Angola. So this makes... Well, I guess Njinga was already a princess, but now she's like the daughter of the Angola. And this is why she's a character in the Royal Diaries book series. This is the era that that story is written about. If you've read that book, you'll know that growing up, Njinga was her father's favorite child. And frankly, of course she was, because she was clearly the best one of them. So this is maybe partly because as a girl, he could show favoritism to her because nobody would see her as a potential heir because this was a situation where the sons would inherit, not the daughters, like literally every country we've looked at so far, I think. So he could show favoritism to her, but nobody, that didn't mean the people would murder her because he could, he could spoil his daughter because she's not a threat to like become the new Angola after. Um, and I say people wouldn't murder her because this is a situation kind of like um, how the Ottoman Empire was before Suleiman changed things where it's like the new Angola was elected. Like people voted on who the next one would be, which meant that all the sons would have this huge battle for who was going to get the role. It wasn't like, let's peaceably all vote on somebody. It's like, if I kill all my brothers, then I'll, they won't have any choice. I have to vote for me. So children got murdered when, it seemed like they could draw support away from um, the Angola. There's going to be, I, I told you, trigger warning, child murder. So, but Njinga was cool as a child because she was a daughter. So that meant that she was not seen as a threat to anybody in that way. She was seen as a threat to her brother because she was clearly the most athletic, talented, smartest, and most capable of all of Mbande's children. This bothered her brother, also called Mbande, because she was just better than him at everything. And so her father had other wives, other concubines. He probably had a lot of children. I do not know how many children, dozens, maybe. And Njinga was better than all of the boys from all of the other mothers. And seeing that, her father just leaned into it. He was really a girl dad type. So he provided Njinga with military training. Um, and she was trained as a warrior to fight alongside him. And she continued to outperform her brothers in every capacity, including with the battle axe, which was the royal weapon. So, and became her signature blade. Shout out to Forged and Fire. She participated in many official and governance duties alongside her father, including legal councils, war councils, and important rituals. So it's not just that she was athletic and good at um, battle, and athleticism, but she's also smart and she was taught about um, the behind the scenes, like diplomacy type things. Furthermore, she was taught by visiting Portuguese missionaries to read and to write in the Portuguese language. 
So in her late teens and early 20s, Njinga led troops in various campaigns against the Portuguese. So she was a woman leading troops, and I think it was unusual, but it wasn't unprecedented for her to do this. And I think because she was the daughter of the king, everyone just kind of went along with it. And because she was so talented, everyone was like, yeah, no, clearly you're the best person for this job. So in a record from 1602, when Njinga was around 19 years old, a Portuguese chronicle, chronicler wrote that Mbundu rebels, so like they were rebelling, they're described by the Portuguese as rebels because they were um, trying to kick the Portuguese out. So to them, that was a rebellion. So the Portuguese chronicle wrote, Mbundu rebels responded to the voice of Queen Njinga, their lady, who always worked to build up in those whom we had conquered hatred against the Portuguese. So she was not only leading successful military campaigns, wielding a battle axe herself, but she was also um, convincing people to switch sides, to to turn against the Portuguese and to follow her because she was so persuasive um, with her speeches. And we're going to see that a lot in her life. So... Yeah, her work was not just leading armies, but also encouraging those enslaved by or allied with the Portuguese to change their allegiance and come follow her. And they did, because it seemed like a great choice. She clearly knew what she was doing. Um, so she would go around and people who were enslaved by the Portuguese would like flee. They would like escape to go and follow her. The Portuguese also wrote around the same time that people found ways to resist induced and ordered by that cunning queen who never tires of looking for ways to ruin us. So they're calling her a queen. She's at this point, I guess, a princess. Um, she's not a queen of anything, but she was so impressive that everyone, the Portuguese just kind of were like, I guess she's a queen. So 1607, Njinga is 25 years old and Ndongo was invaded by the Imbangala a tribal band of mercenaries known for their ferocity in battle and their religious fervor. And they carried the balance of power here in the same way as like the Damaras in the Rani Dida story, or the same as the, um, the Janissaries in the Harem Sultan story. Like these were people who could switch sides and whoever they teamed up with tended to win. So the Imbangala were currently allied with the Portuguese. So this new threat forced Njinga's father to give up any attempts to reconquer his lost territory. It was just once the Imbangala were against you, it's like, that's it. Somewhere around this time, Njinga had a son. She didn't, she wasn't married. I don't think she took a husband, but rather she kept a group of male concubines and also female concubines and also concubines that were neither male nor female. And we're going to talk about that in part two. Um, so if you're thinking, okay, that's just culturally how things worked for the Mbundu in this era. Like women just had a group of concubines. Cool. But in fact, this is not how it worked in this era. And Jenga was just like, here's what I'm going to do. Fuck you. Um, but because she was her father's favorite, she could do what she wanted. And what she wanted was a group of, um, mixed gender concubines. So some men in the Royal court took exception to her being so sexually open, for instance, one man complained that her sexual exploits brought shame upon her father and therefore the family. But you don't say that in this time about this woman. Uh, she had this guy punished by having his son murdered in front of him. Then she had him murdered as well, because guess what? She was the favorite daughter of the Angola. And even though her mother was an enslaved concubine, she was, and Jinka was super powerful. She was going to fuck whoever she wanted. And 
This was a culture that demanded total deference to the royal family. So that guy got what was coming. When she was 35, and I just want to mention, I find this, I love this for this podcast, and I love this for this story, that Njinga's story really takes off when she's at an age in which other people in this podcast are, are dead. Like she, she's an icon of women over age 30 being amazing. So when she was 35 years old, her father was ambushed and murdered by his own men. And then again, kind of like in the Ottoman empire before Suleiman changed some stuff, succession, the kingdom came down to all the potential heirs, all murdering each other until you see who is left. And Njinga's older brother, Mbande, decided to make his move to become the new Angola. Normally, because remember, their mother was a concubine. Their mother was not the first wife of their father. So normally the concubine son would have a weak claim to the throne as compared to the sons of the first wife. But he worked the political turmoil following his father's death. And I mean, his father was murdered by his own men. Like, turmoil is a mild term, I think, to describe what happened. So Mbande turned this to his advantage. He staged a coup before the electors could assemble. Because remember, they got to vote on who would be the new Angola. So he consolidated his power by making sure he had no male relatives who might interfere by killing off um, his half-brother, who was his main competition, um, killed off the rest of his half-brother's family, many prominent members of the royal court. And then he came for his sisters. So... And Jenga had been his longtime rival because she was better at everything than him. And remember, she had a son. So he murdered Njinga's little baby son. And to prevent Njinga or his other sisters from having other sons in the future who could challenge him, he had them all forcibly sterilized. So later in life, Njinga described this process as being done by throwing boiling oils and herbs onto her belly so that from shock, fear, and pain, she should forever be unable to give birth. And I was like, that's awful, but also how would that sterilize her? So I checked in with a friend of mine. I think, I forget, there was some other like gynecological questions I had for this podcast. Anyway, I have a friend as an OBGYN to ask, would that work? Um, and she said, I don't think anything on the belly would sterilize you, but if you put noxious things into the vagina and caused an infection, you could scar down the uterus and tubes and this would effectively sterilize you. And she has seen people in other African countries do this to try and induce an abortion. So this this is the sort of thing that would have happened to Njinga. And if they did throw boiling oils and herbs onto her belly, even if they didn't sterilize her, I will say she did not have any children for the rest of her life. And she was having sex in with people of various genders and so presumably she would have had children if this hadn't happened so anyway this sucks this is awful this happened to her and both of her sisters kembu and fungi and if you think i hope njinga will avenge herself and her sisters against mbande for doing that um she's going to um in fact this is the beginning of a three-pronged revenge plan that is pretty exciting so after this happened, after her brother usurped power and then did this to them, um, and Jenga headed off, she left um, Ndongo and went to the kingdom of Matamba, which was nearby, um, also populated by Mbundu people, and she was able to just kind of hang out there. She stayed there for four years. Um, and while she was there, she honed her reputation for leadership, both on and off the battlefield, so she kept 
Matamba, I guess, was also at war against Congo and the Portuguese and the Imbangala. So she um, just kept leading armies, um, fighting the Portuguese and recovering, presumably from this horrible medical procedure that happened to her. But during these four years, while she was just kind of like building up a good reputation for herself, like getting people to follow her, her brother Mbonde was not doing great as the new Angola. He lacked military skill. And like their father, was just not the leader that this kingdom needed at this point. He was, though, able to form an alliance with the Imbangala, who switched alliances pretty regularly, thus was the way of mercenary warriors. But the Portuguese kept making military gains, and eventually things got to a point where Mbande just needed to have a sit-down peace talk with the Portuguese to put an end to all the fighting. But he was like, I know I'm not good at this diplomacy stuff. I don't speak Portuguese very well. And he was like, who do I know who speaks Portuguese and is good at diplomacy stuff? And he's like, oh, how about my sister Njinga, whose baby son I killed four years ago, and then I forcibly sterilized her. She'll do me a solid. And he reached out to her to see if she would act as him, as an emissary for him to the Portuguese. And she was like, okay, but with conditions. So the conditions were she demanded the authority to negotiate in her, in his name, like that she would be able to actually make decisions at this meeting. She wouldn't just like be sending messages. And then second, she said, if it comes up, she wanted to have permission to be baptized Christian, if that would help. Um, and then third, she demanded a massive entourage to accompany her. And Mbande was like, yes, yes, and yes. And so Njinga, age 38, headed off to give on the best diplomatic mission in world history. She headed off to Luanda, where the Portuguese were stationed, which is like right, right on the coast. Um, and she was accompanied by the massive entourage that she had gotten from her brother, which included military escort, musicians, enslaved people to offer as gifts to the Portuguese, and a whole glam squad to help take care of her, because I haven't mentioned this yet, but Njinga was a fashion girl, and she knew the value of making a grand entrance wherever she went. She was always looking good. While Ndongo leaders usually would meet the Portuguese dressed in Western clothing, to like in Portuguese, European-style clothing, to sort of show deference to them and to be like, we're like you. But instead, Njinga was like, this is her Met Gala moment. So she chose to wear opulent traditional clothing, including feathers and jewels. Um, so dressing in this like Ndongo style. And this is her way to display that their culture was not inferior. And also she knew this outfit looked amazing on her. And so she entered Luanda, carried on the shoulders of her male attendants in this outfit, feathers, just like, hello, it's me and Jenga. Like, I'm surrounded by, like, I don't even know, thousands of people. So, and this procession into Luanda was so memorable. Everyone who saw it and knew how to write wrote about it later because she had arrived uh, so this massive group was welcomed by the Portuguese with a military salute, etc. And they were so impressive looking and the Portuguese wanted to make a good impression. So they offered to house them and paid for their visit. And it does show that this meeting was being done in good faith. And just so we know everyone's name, the Portuguese governor at this time was Joao Correa de Sousa. So when it came to begin negotiations and Jenga arrived in her ensemble, her fabulous outfit, and I'll put pictures on Instagram as well. There's some pictures of what her outfits look like that people from around this time drew. And they are fabulous. Yeah, so she was relying not on dressing like Portuguese 
act in order to show that she was a lady, but rather just through her comportment, you know, her posture, her sort of like the fancy way she held herself. She made it clear that she was royalty. Yeah. So she arrived. I'm going to assume just like paused to just pose in the doorway. I'm literally draped in jewels on both arms and legs and a fabulous outfit. She's known for wearing lots and lots of um, bangles and bracelets on her arms and legs. So technically she was there to represent her brother, but she, as I think you can imagine, quickly made this all about her. So Joao de Sousa pulled a trick that Njinga knew to expect because the Portuguese always did this thinking they were clever. So he was sitting in a fancy velvet chair, but only set out a mat on the ground for Njinga to sit on. This would obviously give him the higher status and make her have lower status. And Njinga knew that this was coming. She had already knew it. She had a plan. And she's like, I'm not doing that. Not when I'm dressed in this outfit. Not when I'm here as equals. And so she just like made a motion to one of her attendants um, because they already planned this ahead. And the attendant got down on all fours and Njinga sat on her back as a human chair and stay like that throughout the negotiations, which maybe took hours. And note, I'm using the word attendant, but I mean, enslaved person is whose back she's sitting on. Yeah. So they started having this conversation and Njinga was like, look, you know, my brother Mbande, like he's just youthful. He's just, he's a young Angola. He doesn't know what he was doing. Note, he was like 40 years old, but you know, boys will be boys. She's like, any mistakes he's done are just the mistakes of youth. So like, let's be friends and work together. Um, Joao was like, okay, but you, your brother has to pay annual tribute, like money and gift to the Portuguese because you are a vassal state. And Jenga was like, uh, no, because you haven't conquered Ndongo and you only get tributes when you conquer somebody. And then they're like, Ooh, I don't know if we can have this peace agreement then if you're not going to offer us, you know, gifts and tributes. And she's like, cause remember she got permission for this. She's like, well, what if I agree to study the Bible and then let you baptize me publicly? And that was a huge deal. And they're like, yes. Okay, let's do that. Oh, and by the way, when they left the room after this hours of negotiation, the, the enslaved woman was still, or man, was still on all fours on the ground being the human chair. And Joao was like, are you going to like let your that person get up now or what? And then Jenga was like, mm, I'm royalty. I never sit on the same chair twice and I have lots more. And then Joao was like, oh shit, this woman is like the real deal. And so then she stayed in Luanda for six months as they worked at this peace agreement slash she was taught about Christianity and the Bible. And apparently she took to it very enthusiastically. Um, and then she was baptized in a huge public event. She took the baptismal name Ana de Sousa, named after her godparents. So Ana de Silva was a woman who she'd stayed with while she was there. And then the governor, Joao de Sousa. So in terms of names, um, I didn't mention this earlier on. So sometimes, and Jenga was like name fluid. Like she herself would write her name with many different spellings. So Njinga is the pronunciation that I'm using. It's what was used in the biography of her I read. But sometimes it's written as Nzinga um, with a Z or a Z if you're American. Sometimes she wrote her name, sometimes she signed her name as Ez, Anna, or sometimes she was like Anna Nzinga. Like she just kind of like her name would was changeable to her. And she would use the Anna de Silva name when she was corresponding with um, Christian people often to just be like, hey, it's me. Remember, I was baptized. Anyway, so that's six months. 
in Luanda doing all this stuff. And later she would remember these months as a time of profound happiness and extraordinary peace for her. And after what she'd experienced, like, of course it was. She got to just, like, chill out there, like, use her gifts, be valuable. Um, she figured out a way for peace between Ndongo and Portugal, but also got um, an agreement from Portuguese for peace between themselves and Matamba, which was the other kingdom where she had been living. So Njinga wasn't even the queen of there, but she got peace for there as well. But while this is happening, don't think I've forgotten, and she had not forgotten about her three-pronged revenge plan because this was part of it, in fact, because she had made such an impression with this diplomatic mission, with her outfits, um, with the human chair, that it made her brother look really useless. And it was just kind of like, well, why isn't she in charge when she's so good at everything? And when she returned to Ndongo, everyone was like, shouldn't you be in charge? Like, and even her brother was like, I'm going to name you my heir instead of my son or until my son comes of age sort of thing. So ultimately she, she like in terms of fashion history, like, is this the first example of a throne being lost to a makeover montage? Potentially. Despite her success in these negotiations with the Portuguese, the peace between Ndongo um, and the Imbengala collapsed. So Ndongo was cool with the Portuguese, but the Mbangala were like, oh, you're cool with the Portuguese. Well, we're not cool with you anymore. So the Mbangala was just always kind of changing who they're allied with. That's their thing. And then because of this, uh, there was a series of defeats. And then the Ndongo royalty, a.k.a. Mbande and Njinga, were driven out of their court. So Mbande was sent into exile. In his absence, the Mbangala established what they called the Kingdom of Kisanje, which so now it was like under Mbangala rule. The Portuguese refused to help Mbande and Njinga against the Imbangala, where they were like, we won't help you unless um, Mbande is able to recapture the capital city of Cabasa, and Mbande has to get baptized. So Mbande, like, to his credit, he retook Cabasa in 1623, and he took tentative steps towards Christianity and being baptized, but he was understandably distrustful of the Portuguese. And actually, this is part two of Njinga's revenge plan against him for killing her son and sterilizing her. So get ready. So Mbande had by now like come to rely heavily on her as an advisor. He listened attentively to everything she said because she clearly knew what she was doing and was better at everything than him. And so she convinced him that it would be humiliating for the king of Ndongo to submit to a foreign power and would amount to a betrayal of their customs. If he got baptized, that would cause all of his supporters to abandon him. So if this seems like a bit much coming from the person who had just gone through a fairly strategic baptism, um, remember that Njinga's private plan here was to undermine her brother to get rid of him so she could become the new leader and so she could avenge the murder of her son. So everything she said was like, it could be true, but also a great part of a revenge plan and this is part of what's great about Njenga. Why not do both? So things were not going well for Mbande psychologically. He didn't get baptized um, and his rule was going badly. He fell into a deep depression. And I think a similar thing had happened to their father. So it's um, maybe a family inherited tendency. Anyway, so he was forced to cede many of his duties to Njenga because he was not able to do stuff because he was just in such a depression. Next thing you know, he had died of mysterious causes, um, which were rumored to be he might have um, poisoned himself to death or maybe someone else poisoned him. Um, 
I feel like if Njinga didn't directly poison him, then her manipulations might have led him to take his own life. But before he died, he had made it clear that Njinga should be his successor. And so she was at this point age 41 and time for part three of her revenge plan. Like, yeah, I know her brother is dead, but she's, she's still going. Njinga moved like her brother had quickly to consolidate her rule so nobody would challenge her. So there's a whole, well, luckily, Mbanda had killed all of the brothers. So like the people who would challenge her were not as direct links as she was. Like she was still the daughter of the previous two Angolas ago. And she had so many supporters, right? Because she had been at this game for a long time. She had been leading armies. Like she had supporters. So she got them to seize the ritual objects associated with the monarchy. So these were things... Uh, that would eliminate her opponents at court if she like was in possession of these items. And she also just assumed the title of Angola. She was just like, hey, guess who's the Angola? It's me. I just declared it myself. And so again, before her, this had, I'm going to say always, but there might have been a woman before because the records, I haven't seen all the records. I don't know if they're all in existence. So the leaders before her had all been men, I think. So again, it's a bit of a Ronnie Ditta energy of just taking the title and being like, guess who has a title now? Me. It's not just a title for men. Now it's a title for me also. She arranged an opulent funeral for her brother, and some of his remains were preserved in a portable shrine. So I'm not sure if that's like an urn sort of thing, but something you could carry around. And this is part of the spiritual beliefs of, of her people. So like she would carry the remains around in this portable shrine so she could consult with them. And we're going to get to that later because does she consult with, does her brother's spirit possess somebody who then gives her advice? Yes. Coming up later. So she said about doing the same sort of thing Mbanda had done when he took over, like just getting rid of anyone who opposed her. And at this point, I'm like, who at this point, who are these foolish people who wouldn't see that first of all, she was the best choice to be the Angola. And second of all, who would cross her? with her reputation. And it was, of course, men from other noble families. So it was like her brother had killed all of the potential heirs from their father, but these were like further flung relatives, I don't know, cousins or whatever. And as per Mbundu tradition, Njinga and also her brother, neither of them had a direct right to the throne because they were children of enslaved wives, not the first wife. So these were people who felt they had a better claim and also were men. But she countered their argument. She's so good with her words. So claimed that, well, she was properly descended from the main royal line through her father, as opposed to her rivals who had no bloodline connection. But her opponents were like, yes, but you're a woman and we're men. Blah, blah, blah. The same thing that happens in every story, every society in the world. Blah. And then also the fact that she had negotiated with the Portuguese was seen by some people as a sign of weakness. Like she told Mbande people would think. Um, people didn't like some of the terms of the treaty that she had created with them. And so this, this was a succession crisis. Like she didn't just swoop in and everyone's like, great, let's go. Um, people were not cool with her being there. And as this happened, relations between Indongo and Portugal, uh, started to get bad again. So Njenga didn't want war and there was a new Portuguese governor. Like during this story, there's like 10 different Portuguese governors because none of them could handle Njenga. Um, the new Portuguese governor, also nobody wanted war, but it was becoming increasingly, increasingly obvious that that was probably going to happen. 
Um, in late 1624, the new governor began a campaign to force local nobles to become Portuguese vassals. And I used that word before, and I will define it because I had to look this up for myself too. A vassal is a holder of land by feudal tenure on conditions of homage and alliance. So you're a landowner, but you're subordinate to someone else. So it's making themselves subordinate to the Portuguese. And that's what the Portuguese wanted all these people to do. Um, and then he also demanded that Njinga should submit herself as a vassal to Portugal, which she obviously refused. To weaken the Portuguese colonial administration, Njinga dispatched messengers to encourage Mbundu people enslaved to the Portuguese to flee and join her kingdom, thereby depriving the colony of its income and manpower. And this happened. These enslaved people were like, hell yeah, um, and escaped. The Portuguese complained about these escapes being like hey a bunch of our enslaved people are escaping and Njinga was like okay like as per our treaty i will return any escaped slaves but i don't see any escaped slaves here do you see any escaped slaves here i don't think there's any escaped slaves here so good for her oh and don't think i forgot revenge part three so before he died so mbande had his son and heir was a seven-year-old boy whose name I don't know. I'm going to guess Mbande because that's the family name. So he had turned the seven-year-old son and heir over to the Imbangala for safekeeping. So this was before those two, they stopped working together. Anyway, so he had a son. The Imbangala were keeping him safe um, and training him up to be a warrior under the guardianship of an Imbangala man called Kasa. And basically, Njinga wanted to kill this son. She wanted to kill this boy as a repercussion of Mbanda having killed her son, like an eye for an eye type situation. So she was like, hey, can I just like hang out with my nephew? And the Imbangala are like, no, you're obviously going to kill him. And she's like, mm, but can I hang out with my nephew, visit him? They're like, no. And so what she figured out she had to do was to seduce Casa, the guardian of the boy, in order to get close to her nephew to kill him. So Linda Haywood in her biography describes this perfectly, and I'm just going to quote her. So Njinga used her wiles and wealth to persuade Kasa she was passionately in love with him, displaying her affection publicly and showering him with gifts. At first, Kasa resisted, disturbed that Njinga was older than he was, and convinced that she wanted to marry him only to get her hands on the boy. But eventually, he agreed to a union and to surrender the boy. Her young nephew accompanied Kasa to the site of the wedding. The ceremony wasn't even over before Njinga seized the little boy, murdered him, threw his body in the Kwanzaa River and declared that she had revenged her son. And Jenga also killed many of her other relatives who were in attendance. So murder wedding, like this is like Game of Thrones, red wedding, except one woman, just in Jenga. And she's the bride. Like she convinced this guy to marry her just so that she could lure all her enemies to the wedding and then kill them during the wedding. This is the point where I was just like, oh, this is a, this is at Fredigan level. This is like Fredigan wishes level. Bear that in mind when we're scoring her for scandalousness and also scheminess. But so with all those people, her revenge plan done, she could move on to just really focusing on ruling and getting rid of other threats. But despite her overall excellence at everything, including murder wedding planning, um, the Mbundu nobles didn't like her. So this is giving me Damaras from Rani Dida's story again. They didn't like her policies because those threatened their income somehow, and so soon rebellions against her rule broke out. Her most dangerous rival was called 
Hari A Ndongo, and he opposed having a woman rule the kingdom. Get it together, honestly. She attempted to crush his rebellion, but failed, um, and this made her look weaker, and that convinced more nobles to revolt against her. So she attempted to negotiate with the Portuguese uh, while she gathered more forces to try and, you know, defeat the rebels in her own country. But the Portuguese guessed this was a delaying tactic, and then they recognized Hari Atendango as the new Angola. And then the Portuguese declared war on Njinga in 1626. Like, they just declared war on her as a person, which is, like, wild. But also, like, yeah, she's basically has the power of a country. So they declared war on her as a person. She still had all these supporters, though, remember? So, facing this Portuguese invasion, she gathered her army and withdrew to a group of islands in the Kwanzaa River. And this is where she decided to use her brother's relics. So, remember how she, like, got baptized? That was kind of like a JK, not really. Like, she clearly got baptized just to make the peace treaty happen. She wasn't like, I am now a Christian and I believe all this stuff. Like, she's, and she's going to make this shift a couple other times in the story. Like, she's very mercenary is that the word where she just kind of like knew what how she needed to present herself in order to get what she needed in order to succeed so like she's completely not christian anymore to the point that so she's got her brother's relics with her and so she took part in a ritual like a imbundu ritual where his spirit possessed a priest um so she could talk to him so she's talking to basically the ghost of her brother um who in life she'd hated and who she kind of is responsible for him having died anyway but as a ghost he was seemingly much more helpful and chill now um through the priest Mbande's ghost told her that she must refuse to become a vassal to the portuguese at any cost and that it was better to retain one's liberty through flight than to submit to the enemy and she took his ghost advice um and then honored her brother by sacrificing 14 young women on his grave but by taking and then following the ghost advice that made her followers be more trusting of her because they saw that she had the blessings of the ancestors to continue resisting the Portuguese. After a series of battles, she was defeated and forced to make a long march into eastern Indongo. During this retreat, she was forced to abandon most of her followers, but this actually was strategic because the Portuguese army was frankly more interested in recapturing the escaped enslaved people than they were in pursuing her army. So she kind of sacrificed them to save herself. And then she and her followers escaped, I'm not sure where they were, but under the cover of darkness, they avoided the detection of the Portuguese troops surrounding the island where they were hiding out. After taking some time to regroup and shore up support in the eastern part of her kingdom, she came back stronger than ever. And then she spent the next three years harassing and striking against the Portuguese, who were becoming increasingly alarmed over the fact that she would just not go away and was amazing. And then the Portuguese suffered a setback when their puppet king, Hari Atendango, died of smallpox and they had to find a new king of Ndongo and they chose a guy called Angola Hari, not Hari Atendango, Angola Hari, um, another Ndongo nobleman with basically the same name because this is the Vulgar History Podcast and there's always repeated names. Anyway, Angola Hari proved to be an unpopular leader who viewed him like correctly as a Portuguese puppet. Some nobles welcomed his rule, but he wasn't very good. So a divide soon formed inside the kingdom of Ndongo, in which the common people and lesser nobles supported Njinga, while the powerful nobles supported Ngolahari and the Portuguese. 
November 1627. Njinga attempted to negotiate with the Portuguese again, sending a peace delegation along with a gift of 400 enslaved people. She indicated that she was willing to become a vassal of the Kingdom of Portugal and pay tribute if they supported her claim to the throne but she was adamant that she was the rightful queen of Ndongo. The Portuguese rejected the offer. In fact, they beheaded her lead diplomat, which, okay. Um, And they issued the counter demand that she retire from private life, renounce her claim to the kingdom, and submit to Angola Hari as rightful king. And Jiga is like, yeah, no. So faced with the realization that the Portuguese were against her, many Ndongo nobles stood against her. And Jinga, like her father and her brother, slipped into depression, locking herself into a room for several weeks. But she emerged, and within a month had begun a new campaign to rebuild her alliances again, because she could not be stopped. And I think part of it was while she was rebuilding her strength, like while she was locked alone in the room, just like thinking, I guess, she took advantage of Ngolahari's political weakness, highlighting his lack of political experience. And in fact, Ngolahari was despised by both his nobles and the Portuguese allies. For while previous kings of Indango had all been warriors, Ngolahari had no soldiers of his own and was forced to rely on Portuguese soldiers. Ngolahari and the Portuguese launched a counter-propaganda campaign against Njinga. I don't know if this is a pamphlet's moment. It might be more like a gossip rumors spoken campaign they were hoping to use her gender as a mean to delegitimize her strength like the only thing they could say against her is she's a woman and her to her followers they're like yeah and she's great she's a woman and she's great we don't mind that she's a woman um this anyway the propaganda backfired because she increasingly outmaneuvered angola hari politically because she's amazing at everything in one notable incident, Njinga sent Angola Hari threatening letters and a collection of items considered to be inhabited by spirits, and she challenged him to combat. The messages terrified him, called on his Portuguese allies for support, which diminished his own prestige while adding to Njinga's reputation. So she's just like doing everything she can to just like psychologically destroy him, and he was already clearly pretty fragile. But she was still unable to directly face the Portuguese in battle because she didn't have enough troops. By late 1628, her army had been greatly reduced, down to around 200 soldiers, perhaps, and she had been effectively expelled from Ndongo. Following her expulsion, she and her supporters continued to fight against the Portuguese. In 1629, the queen was dealt a crushing blow. Her camp was invaded by the enemy, and she was able to escape by, in a pretty awesome sequence, rappelling down a cliff into a ravine using some sort of vine... Um, her sisters, Kambu and Fungi, who had been with her this whole time, were both captured by the Portuguese. So Kambu and Fungi were the closest thing she had to social peers. Well, they were. They were They were her closest friends. They were her sisters. And they were the only people who really understood what was going on with her. They were also the only people she fully trusted. Uh, she learned that they had been captured. And not just that, that they were being forcibly converted to Christianity. And Njinga swore that she wouldn't rest until she rescued them. And that is where I'm going to leave things for now. Because this is a goddamn two-part episode. Because this story just keeps going. It always feels weird to end an episode without having a uh, scoring. But truly can't wait for how this scoring is going to go. It is... There's already so much. And this is just halfway through the story. Like, I can't wait. So, all the regular reminders for everybody... Oh, yeah. Well, we haven't yet found anybody who... 
we'll wait to the end of the story to see if anyone deserves the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. I mean, at this point, there's not really anyone who I would give that to. Maybe her sisters, but we haven't heard much about them yet. Maybe next week. We'll see. Um, yeah. So please suggest people who you think would be good subjects for another episode of Vulgar History. I'm really keen to learn about cool new people. And so you can submit those. There's a contact button at vulgarhistory.com, which is on my little website. Um, you can also send me messages on, we're on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod. Um, also Twitter at vulgarhistory. You could email me directly, vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. If you, there's a link in the show notes to the Njinga of Angola, the book by Linda Haywood, which is so good. And if you follow that link, it takes you to a website called bookshop.org which is a place where if you buy books from there using my links, then I get a little kickback from that. So that's a little way to support the show while also getting a cool book. You can also pick up our merch at vulgarhistory.store, vulgarhistory.store. You can use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. The most recent thing that I've added to the store is inspired by the story of Harem, t-shirt and I think a mug and some other things that just say spiteful hag, which... I think is a great descriptor for any of us, for myself. Um, and a very aggressive woman who is angry about everything or however that goes, there's that stuff too. And yeah, so I guess that's all the things. Oh yeah, there's the Patreon. If you want to join the Patreon, you can get the bonus episodes. Um, Vulgar Peace Theater episodes with me, Lana Witt Johnson and Alison Epstein talking about costume dramas. There's So This Asshole episodes about horrible men in history. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash Writer, the info is all there. And I guess that's everything. I can't wait to get into part two. I hope you're also excited for it because that'll be next week's episode in Jenga part two. And until then, keep your mask on and your tits out. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.